Welcome to another edition of Running the Race with Rob King. I'm so glad that you're with us today as we continue through the book of Revelation. Today we're on Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. Recall now that the seventh trumpet was blown and sounded in chapter 11. But now in chapters 12 through 14, we're going back through the tribulation, but this time from Satan's perspective, if you remember. So chapters 12 through 14 are through the tribulation from Satan's perspective, and then the tribulation will resume in chapter 15. Now this uh, week, it has to do with a war that's going on in heaven. There was last week kind of a prelude to that war. If you remember, there was the woman who is Israel, symbolic of Israel, the red dragon, symbolic of Satan, and then the child, who is obviously Christ, the Messiah. It was preparing for this war, and now we're getting into the war. We're going to talk a lot about the devil today. So um, if you can, there, Revelation chapter 12, look at verse 7. I'll read, starting in verse 7 through verse 12. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. Now that's referring to the devil. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they were o- they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason... Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So here we see this war that's waged in heaven. And of course, Satan has been working against the forces of good, from the very beginning, when he pridefully exalted himself. And uh, as we know from the Old Testament, he was originally cast out of heaven because of his pride usurping or trying to usurp the authority of God. And then we find him in the garden, and what is he doing? Saying the same thing to Adam and Eve, that God doesn't want you to be like him, so God is trying to prevent something uh, from you having something. And and you need to step up into your right, rightful place, basically, what he's saying, in all of his pride. We need to remember that Satan is not in hell. And as a matter of fact, he has been cast down to the earth, but then has the ability to be in heaven, has access to heaven. Just as one example, you can remember that Job, in the book of Job, uh, Satan was granted access to come before God and make these accusations. And so Satan is not in hell. He longs to reign, and he wants to reign. We see that from where he tempted Christ. He wanted even Christ to bow down before Satan, who is, it's the irony there is that Satan is a created being, and that Christ as the Messiah is never going to bow down to him. But this is his desire. 
We read in Scripture that uh, the one in us is greater than he who is in the world. Satan is ruling the world. And so we're seeing now in chapter 12 the tribulation more from Satan's perspective. So there's this war that's in heaven. Let's get into the let's get into the passage. There was this war in heaven. Michael and his angels were waging war with the dragon. And so how are how are we as believers to respond to Satan? We're going to talk about this kind of through this passage. Believers, we're to be, you know, aware that he has schemes, that he's a deceiver. We're not supposed to give him any opportunity in our life. We are to resist him. These are things that are said in Scripture, and we'll get more into that in just a moment. How do we actually respond to the enemy? Are we supposed to bind the enemy? Are we supposed to cast the enemy out? Are we supposed to do all these things that we hear so often? Uh, how are we to respond to the enemy? Well, before we get to that, let's let's talk about Michael and his angels, and they are now engaged in fighting this dragon. They are fighting Satan. We don't know from Scripture why or what kind of brought about this full-on war. We find that in Scripture, if it doesn't tell us explicitly, we probably don't need to know. There is one theory that could be uh, the case. It could have been the rapture that triggered this all-on war that's happening between Michael the archangel and the enemy. Perhaps, I mean, obviously Paul wrote that for the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we always be with the Lord. That's First Thessalonians chapter 4. That's describing the rapture. And perhaps during the rapture, we pass through that realm, and there is that shout of the Archangel Michael, that uh, that is uh, the calling of the saints coming home, right? And we're going to be with the Lord. Perhaps we pass through that realm, and this infuriates the enemy, and the and there is this battle that wages. We're really not sure. This we know. Michael the archangel is involved often in Scripture with these sorts of battles. You can remember from Daniel chapter ten, right? There was this enemy this satanic or demonic spirit that was resisting God in Persia, and then Michael the archangel came and it was engaged with that. Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, this is from Jude chapter 9, didn't dare pronounce a judgment railing against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you, the Lord rebuke you. So evidently from Jude, we learn that there was some kind of dispute over the body of Moses. We know that in Deuteronomy, the the Moses' body was buried in a place where no man knows where it's at. So Michael the archangel won that battle. But even when he was fighting against the enemy, whether it's in Daniel or whether it's here mentioned in Jude, he's fighting on the Lord's behalf. And even then he said, the Lord rebuke you. So Michael the archangel, obviously a strong angel, mentioned many times in Scripture, mentioned here, as an archangel, a, a head chief angel, he doesn't even go by his own power, but he says, the Lord rebuke you. So it's interesting that Michael is engaged, he's fighting the dragon, 
And like I said, we're, we're not sure what brought about this battle, this one kind of uh, battle that's going to now permanently um, kick Satan and his angels out of heaven forever and ever. But whatever it was that brought this on, this was a huge war. We also don't know the, how they fought this war. We're not told how they engage in warfare. How do demons and spirits and angels fight one another? We don't know. It's a good point for us at, at, this, at this time to say, look, if the Bible doesn't talk about it, God doesn't want us to know it. If the Bible isn't explicit, it must not matter. We have to trust that the Lord has revealed every story of Christ's life, for example, every part of creation that he wants us to know and understand that's critical for us to live for him. But we don't know what that battle looks like. But it was an all-out war. And they were waging war, but the enemy, of course, was not strong enough. And then there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. In other words, the enemy now is completely, completely kicked out of heaven. This is his second and his permanent um, expulsion from heaven. Now, he's the dragon. He's called the devil, which is a false accuser. This is a perfect name for him, right? He is the false accuser. Satan is the one who's roaring about seeking whom he may devour. He's always accusing the brethren. And what's he accusing the brethren of? What's he accusing believers of? Well, obviously, he's bringing their sin before God. He's accusing us of being sinners, which, which is an accusation that absolutely fits. But why does the Scripture then say there is now, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, because we have an advocate. 1 John chapter 2 says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So the enemy's always accusing. The enemy's always lying. And he's always bringing an accusation against us. But the accusation against believers doesn't work. Why? Because Jesus Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for us. He took that, that substitutionary place for us. He died in our place, that atonement that we might be at one with God, having peace with God, being reconciled to God. Why? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The only thing that justifies us before Almighty God is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How will we ever stand before God but only in the righteousness of Christ? This is why it says in... Romans, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who, listen to this sentence, who will bring a charge against God's elect? So there's the question, who will bring a charge? Who will be able to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So imagine this glory. This is a glorious reality now. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that any accusation that comes against us... Well, who's going to bring an accusation? Because Christ is the one who died for us. Now, we don't stand in our own goodness, do we? We don't stand in our own ability. 
We don't stand and say we are we are good and we are right and we are holy. No, we say that we 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 stand justified by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who can bring an accusation against us now? So that all of the enemy's accusations, although they are true, we are sinners, yet there's a greater truth. Christ died for us, and Christ is our advocate. So how will he not freely give us all things when he's given us his son? Satan is our adversary. He is our accuser. He is the deceiver. He deceives the whole world. That's his goal. Satan wants to deceive the whole world. Well, think about it. Who, who in their right mind would ever follow Satan if he were honest about what's going on and what's happening? If he admitted that he's a liar, if he, if he somehow would, if, if we would know, like we would look at the scripture and say, oh, he's going to be forever cast into a lake of fire. Do you think you'd follow him? No. In order to get a following, he has to deceive. He has to lie. And he has to really hide who he actually is. So all of these depictions that we see that are so popular in culture of the enemy are never the right ones. The enemy would love for you to either A, believe that he doesn't exist, or B, believe in him in a form that is not biblical or true. So the pitchfork and the the horns and all this, that's fine with him. Believe in him what you shouldn't believe, what is not true. But what he doesn't want you to do is believe the truth about who he actually is. He is our adversary. He is a liar. He is a schemer. We need to absolutely resist him. Here's the other thing. You're not strong enough to fight him. He must be defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ, not by us. No one would follow him if they knew the truth. See, and here's, here's what the enemy does. He lies. He wants, to, he wants us to believe a lie about God. He wants us to believe the lies about him. This is why from the very beginning he was a liar and he is the father of lies. He, he wants you not to believe the truth of God's word. This is why God's word is so important that you'd have the helmet of salvation, that you'd have the breastplate of righteousness, that you'd gird yourself, that we would be dressed in the truth of God's word and have the gospel of peace. All of these things, because they are true, Help us to resist and fight against the enemy. He is out to accuse. He is out to deceive. And then the passage goes on and says this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night, and they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. So, a loud voice in heaven, and it says, our, this is this plural idea, this voice came, and it's ours. Who's saying this? Couldn't be an angel. This uh, voice, these voices that come, are worshipers, most likely the redeemed saints that are in heaven. They talk about the salvation that has come, this all-encompassing power and sovereign power of Almighty God. And they're rejoicing now because the enemy has been cast down. All of those slanderous accusations will be no more. The enemy has been defeated and cast down. Now, here's a key. How did the enemy get defeated? And how was he cast down? He, oh, he was overcome because of the blood of the Lamb. 
It was the blood of the Lamb that defeated him. It is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ that defeated him. They didn't defeat him by binding him, by some formula of rebuking him. If you've ever been taught this, this is, this is false teaching. You don't bind him. You don't lose him. You don't, you don't take the enemy and cast him down. You have absolutely no, no power or authority over the enemy as a human being. Even Michael, the archangel, said, the Lord rebuke you. How do we overcome him? By the blood of the Lamb. For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh, the Word of God says. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, are not carnal, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So here again, you can see clearly that the battle is for the truth. We are destroying speculations and every prideful, arrogant, lofty idea raised up against what? The actual knowledge of who God truly is. In 1 John, he writes, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Maybe I'm overemphasizing this a little bit, but I was brought up in a church and, and churches, and maybe you were too, where there's this false teaching going around that we're to bind the enemy. And uh, the, nowhere in Scripture does it say that. First Peter chapter 1 says, You weren't, weren't redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Or listen to this from Romans chapter 4. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So the only reason that the accuser wouldn't be able to accuse us even is because of the blood of the Lamb. This is how the enemy is defeated. It's Christ Jesus. We're not surprised. It's Christ Jesus himself. It's not us. Not unto us be any glory, but all the glory needs to go to him. And then it says the word of their testimony. And the word of their testimony simply means that these remain faithful to their testimony that Jesus Christ is the Savior. He's the Lord. By the way, we all have the same testimony. This is another thing from my past when we were brought up as like some people had this radically crazy testimony and it seemed like the crazier their story of how God redeemed them from a wicked life, the more grand God was, if you follow what I'm saying. Nothing could be further from the truth. All of our testimonies are the same. Whether you grew up in church, Jesus Christ is your testimony what he did on the cross. No matter if you come out of a life of drugs or whatever life you come from, no matter how you came to Christ, he's the one that did it. The testimony is the same. The testimony is that of Jesus Christ and his love for us, his death on the cross. It goes on to say that not only the word of their testimony, but they didn't love their own life, even faced with death. In other words, the blood of the lamb defeated the enemy. They stayed true to the testimony of Jesus Christ, and they didn't even 
I want to say, didn't care if it cost them their life because they knew even at that time that they're going to persevere. And even if they give their life, they're now going to be with Christ. Matthew 24 says, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. He promises. See, this is the thing. There is this unbroken chain of salvation. Not only Think about it. Not only did God seek you while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and, and, it, and throughout Scripture it says, you were dead, you were dead. I ask you, what could a dead man do? Nothing. God had to act first. God moved first. God was the, he's the white pieces on the chessboard. Somebody's got to move first, and it wasn't us. It's not that we're so great or that we moved to him, or not even that God looked through the corridors of time and saw that you would choose him, because even that would give you a little bit of credit on how great you are. But God made the first move from the beginning, choosing you, awakening you, and giving you a desire for him. If there's any desire that you have to pray or read his word or love his church or love him, that comes from him. But not only did he do that, that's the first thing that happened. But then there's this salvation, regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. But all of this, we understand through Scripture, is tied together. That as sure as God sought you, as sure as he bought you, that is the guarantee that you have that he is also going to glorify you. You will be glorified in the end. You will persevere. You will keep believing. Why? Because he's the one that started it. He who started or began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Who started it? See, if you started it, you could end it. If you started it, you could lose it. If it's all up to you from the beginning, then, I mean, you know, you, if you chose your salvation, then you could absolutely lose your salvation, because who are you? But listen to what Romans 8, 28 through 30 says. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I would ask you in this, in this passage, who's doing it all? Those whom he predestined, he called, he called, he justified, he justified, he glorified. The point is, he's doing it. He's doing this work. The word of their testimony, and their testimony was Christ. Christ did it from the very beginning. And then they didn't even love their life, but even when faced with death, they gave their lives. That is evidence of Christ in their life. They endure till the end because they they started with him. It was the work of God from the very beginning. For this reason... Heavens and all who dwell in them will rejoice. But then it ends with this woe. It ends with this warning. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come to you with great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. So this is the point. We don't know the exact moment. But this is the time when the enemy is cast down from heaven for the final time, never to return. And now he's on the earth breathing threats, knowing that his time is short. He knows now that he only has a brief time. And this is exactly when the Antichrist is raised up. 
mid midway through the tribulation, the Antichrist is raised up, and how evil must this Antichrist be? Fully Satan's messenger. Because the enemy knows that his time is short, he's got one kind of last gasp effort to destroy the people of God, to destroy Israel, so that Jesus won't come and establish his kingdom. He is desperate now. And desperate times call for desperate measures. This is where we're getting kind of a behind-the-scenes look at what happened. There's this war that happened in heaven. The enemy is finally cast out forever from, from heaven. And now the Antichrist is raised up because the enemy only has a short time. And this is a good reminder for us that all of this is happening according to God's sovereign will. You say, man, all the talk of the enemy here, that's... It's kind of frightening to think about the enemy. Yes, but greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And this is all God's plan from the very beginning. I like where Martin Luther is is quoted in in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. If If you've sung that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, it has this one stanza that that speaks to this beautifully. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. I want to remind you as we're going through this and we're hearing about the red dragon, we're hearing about the enemy, and there's this war that's going on in heaven. One little word shall fell him. We need to recall that Satan is a created being, and he's no match for God. He's no match for Jesus Christ. It's not an equal battle. This is not equal at all. This isn't an equal amount of righteousness and an equal amount of evil, and we don't know the outcome and what's going to happen. One little word shall fail him. The Lord Jesus Christ isn't going to have any trouble destroying the enemy. He's, he's defeated the enemy throughout history, defeated him then on the cross, He'll throw him into the abyss. He'll reign for a thousand years. And then when the enemy makes another last-ditch effort, he will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. God's sovereign will is going to win. Aren't you glad that God has a free will? Aren't you glad that God is in heaven and he's doing what he wants? Father, we come to you today and we thank you that you are doing what you want to do. Father, we pray that your will would be done and your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you for what it reveals. We also thank you for what is concealed, the things that we don't need to know. Father, we trust that this is your word and this is true and that you always speak the truth to us. Father, I pray that you'd help us to live in the truth according to your word, that we would really resist the enemy. Father, that we would be able to resist him uh, in a way that our lives would be righteous and holy and pure. Help us to be people about your word, Father. Help us to cast down every arrogant thought uh, that would would lift itself up against the truth of your wonderful word. We thank you for all these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.